Good morning. Thank you so much, Gonzo. It's really good to see you and others, too, who are haven't been here in the flesh in, in, in some time. It's really wonderful to see everyone. This is the, um, the first Sunday of Advent, and my goodness, like everything else, I feel like I'm drawing near to something that I've done so many times and approached so many times, and yet it feels different. It feels new. It feels strange. Sometimes it feels like something is a little off or something is a little wrong. And that's what I want to talk about a little bit today. I'm going to be a little bit uh, open and personal, and this is really about opening up ourselves this season to the light of God. This is the inhale this first Sunday of Advent, of getting, taking in a breath and really trying to prepare ourselves for intentionally reflecting on the gift of God's own life, God's own self coming into the world. I have to stay tethered to the mic. I forgot I don't have an ear thing in. But, um, so, I'm going to share a couple of experiences I've had that I think, I could be wrong, but I think people will feel connected to and at least will resonate with people in some small ways. And it's got to do with with a lot of this business around the pandemic. Uh, I was leaving for uh, Dallas to go down and meet with folks for a preaching initiative that I was uh, fortunate enough to go to with Amy Henniger. I got to see her speak, and it was a really wonderful time. And on the way to the airport, I'm driving past a van covered in crosses, and it has on it this big sign on the back of it painted that is essentially against masking and it says on the basis of a scripture this is why it caught my mind it's not new to see people saying this but what caught my mind about it was that it was based on a mix of texts from first peter and at the time i was reflecting on first peter a lot and first john and it felt so personal because it said fear god alone and it made references to perfect love casting out all fear, and connected that to this business of protecting oneself from a virus and being in this place and in this space that we continue to find ourselves in. And I thought, my goodness, is that, is that right? Is it, is it a failure of faith? What? And, and then it made me think about this, this situation we have so often with, with people uh, uh, claiming outright that masking is, is downright un-American. And for a long time, I've kind of held that at arm's length and thought about that as just a, a strange argument about politics and constitution and legality and these kinds of things. And, but it's easy, I think, to keep things at an arm's length. And this season is about opening ourselves up. And I think I've realized after some reflection, prayer, thinking about my own experiences over the last year and returning into hybrid services here in this space, I've come to realize that in some ways I might not be so different in some ways than these folks. And let me explain what I mean. As we've gone about our home lives, as we've returned to work, as we've reprioritized ourselves, had some some good things have come from from this whole business of of the pandemic, Uh, stepping back from our usual habits, thinking about them 
critically reevaluating our relationship to our work, to our families, to our loved ones, um, to our own health and our own safety. But in some ways, I've also found myself falling into this really strange pattern of thinking. When things don't feel the same as they did, when we come back into this space, we want to worship together. When we go to Thanksgiving, we want to be uninhibited, feel, feel safe, feel free, feel a sort of sense of liberation. And there are times when I have fallen myself into thinking this, this whole business is so alien, so unfair, so strange, or thinking even worse, and this is where the idolatry slips in, thinking that the ongoing feeling of struggle with this, the feeling that things aren't quite like they felt before, is somehow my fault. If I could just do things differently, if we could just find as a culture the right technology to fix this, the right vaccine to get rid of this thing. Um, and I realized that the anti-maskers who say it's un-American to wear a mask are absolutely 100% right. It is. Because in our sense of American exceptionalism, we have the idea that we ought to be able to have the proper resources, the proper competence, the proper technology, and the strength to eradicate this thing. And the mask is a sign. A sign about something deeper, about what it means to be human, what it means to have need not as something that comes in when you don't do things right, but as something that is fundamental to the human life, to the human being. And I realized that in so many ways, I had, to some degree or another, fallen into that, that pattern of thinking. Like, oh, I should just be able to, to fix this. And so that's what I want to look at today as we continue to walk with Julie's idea of holy longing. I'm going to try to move quickly. Uh, we won't be able to touch on all the scriptures there. Um, but we, Julie's introduced us as a community to this idea of reflecting for the whole year on holy longing. And today looking at need and love. And, then, and throughout this time of Advent, bringing together different words that sometimes seem uh, to be uh, disjunctive. Uh, the um, grief and joy, loss and hope, power and peace, not because they're strict binaries, but because it's, it's, I think, an important thing in this season as we let the light in and prepare ourselves to worship God and meet God on God's own terms in Jesus, that we, um, we think about need, vulnerability, grief, and what these things mean in relationship to God and God's love. So picking up first with holy longing. That's an amazing word. I've loved thinking about our phrase. I've, I've loved thinking about it this whole, this whole time since we did it for the retreat, but it's stuck with me. Holy longing. It's a phrase that probably evokes different things at different times for different people. But in one sense, one of the things I'm thinking about is longing as something that is made different, made different somehow by God. And I think, when I think about need, 
vulnerability, the fact that human beings have needs. I mean, the, the, the fact that we have it is not some secret special insight. I'm not saying anything anybody doesn't know and hasn't always known. The issue is what we do with or how we think of or how we frame the fact and the reality of need. We all know that we do not have life within ourselves. We have to go outside of ourselves to get water, to get food. We need to be safe. <laughs> we need to take care of one another. But the question is what we think that need means how we think it leads us to relate to others. And so I want to go kind of indirectly this morning, take a brief foray to avoid the complexity of these texts as much as humanly possible, um, and, and take a little trip into another mythic frame from the ancient Near East, namely the Epic of Gilgamesh. Have you ever heard of the Epic of Gilgamesh? Right here? Yeah. It's one of my favorite honestly, one of my favorite ancient stories. Um, and we won't linger there long, but just to say that I think it's, it's really fascinating. In, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, you have a king, Gilgamesh. This king is part divine. He's a third uh, god and two-thirds human. And he lives in the city of Uruk, where he rules within the walls of Uruk. And he is an extremely powerful king. He is powerful in battle. He's resourceful in agriculture. He, he, he takes charge of the earth and manipulates it toward giving life and bounty. He protects the walls and keeps chaos at bay outside of it. But he develops this relationship. And it's a strange thing because a king as powerful and strong and resourceful as Gilgamesh probably ought not to need a friend and at first thinks as much and can't relate to this friend without trying to dominate and overtake and prove his superiority to this friend. And this friend is exceedingly, exceptionally strong in Kidu. And they wind up building a relationship that already is built on a sense of Gilgamesh coming to terms with his vulnerability and in Kidu ultimately dies. And Gilgamesh can't stop it. Gilgamesh decides that it's not appropriate for this kind of end to be the end for human beings, and so he's going to fix it, just like he's fixed everything else, just like he's overcome every other challenge. He's going to be a resourceful, dominant, powerful, wise king. And so he leaves the safety of the city and he goes on this journey. And what Gilgamesh winds up doing is he actually winds up going to the gods in this story. He goes through the deep, dark belly, the shadow of this tremendous mountain that no mortal has ever been able to go through, down into the darkness, leagues and leagues and leagues and leagues and leagues into the darkness, so dark that it terrifies him. He can't see at all. And he makes this whole journey and emerges into the sunlight and into this garden, and there he is in the presence of the gods. And the gods, every time they see him, are horrified. They're, they can see that his cheeks are blushed red from the heat and that he looks like he hasn't eaten and like he's tired. They know he doesn't belong there. Something's wrong with him. And Gilgamesh pleads with them and tells them that it is not right for death to be the end for human beings and he has come to get eternal life. And the ultimate journey that he makes though is unsuccessful. 
He comes very close to getting a flower that could give life in the last dash, but it's, but it's taken from him unexpectedly by a silent, creeping snake. But the important thing he learns, the thing that he does bring back, is that he brings back a sense of a loss of enchantment with the gods. He finds out these secrets about the gods, that they're actually capricious. They don't know what they're doing. They didn't even mean to cause the great disastrous flood. <laughs> and what he's learned is the gods themselves are fools. The gods themselves are a danger to some extent. And the big lesson is that he comes back to the city and what's changed is now he looks at that wall, the same secure wall he left, and he points to uh, the the uh, semi-divine character that's helped him to get back and he says, look at the wall. Tells them, look at the wall. Not my face, not my vulnerability, not my mortality. Look at my wall. I built this wall, the walls of Uruk. And the gods can't come in that wall. That's not their place. That's the place. For the human being and for the king. And it's a beautiful story in so many ways. The poetry of it is, is just, it, it's just relentlessly powerful. It comes from the same cradle of civilization out of which we get a very different testimony about who God is and what God is. But, but it, is a, it is a way of framing these things that I think is pervades not just secular culture, but also some expressions of, of Christianity. And I consider myself somebody at risk of falling into that at times, which is why I think it's good to open up to this during Advent, a season when we try to intentionally make space for God. The, the idea is that, yes, death is the ultimate end. There's no escaping it. And so what one does is accept that, make space for that, and make sure that you keep the malevolent forces at bay as much as one can with control, with power, whether it's over nature, whether it's over people. And you build the strongest wall you can. Abraham, as we think about holy longing, is actually called out of this same exact part of the world. It's called into this life outside of walls. In this journey with a God who makes promises. Promises about a future that can't be yet seen. And makes Abraham into a stranger. (laughs) One who has no land, no home, no rights. Is promised it, but it's out ahead of him. And Abraham begins this journey with Yahweh there in a completely different world. Abraham's vulnerabilities become opportunities to reveal and make human righteousness. His act of trust, his vulnerability and need for God become a space where God's active love can become known can begin to take shape and have a character. And of course, Abraham is moving into this story, going all the way back to Adam and Eve and coming all the way through. So Abraham enters into this world but becomes a key part of growing in this story of God's ongoing work to relate to human beings. And you have this long story of that being exactly the way that God makes God's own self known in the world even in the presence of incredible vulnerability, incredible pain. Abel worships God rightly. We learn something of what worship looks like from him, and he also does so in a world that's filled with murder. 
but his blood cries out from the ground. And God makes it a part of making God's own self known and building the future that God is building. Noah is asked to do absurd things in the face of a violent world and becomes a space where we learn that God remembers human beings, will not completely destroy, but can bring human beings into partnership and take hold of them. We see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob learning, loving, growing. Sarah, in the midst of barrenness, there finding and learning something new about God, a God whose promises are so absurd that she laughs at them. And yet, God holds her and takes her and continues to do God's work. And it is this story of God taking hold of human beings in vulnerability that leads up to this moment. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The story that we come into, holy longing, longing, desire, need that's shaped by this God, the God, is a space where we discover who God is and is a story about not us having to take the vulnerability and the pain and the struggle of being human all the way up to the gods and become disenchanted with them, but where God actually is so committed to God's own promises that God comes down into humanity, among us, with us, like us. And it's there that we see the real challenge and call and revelation of need. We see from all these other people who have died in faith and who are promised to still be a part of the future that God's building. We have learned so much and seen so much. But in this one Jesus now, there is something unique, something different. This one is a unique and only son. There is something of this one that bears the very name of God. And power and need and love and identity and what it means to be human all are transformed as we watch the word, the word of God's promise, the word uh, that made the earth, the logos, become flesh. And we see one who is son and who has always been son. And so we are here now in this one seeing the Father and learning who God is. And we get to see in a human life, in a physical, fleshly human life, with vulnerabilities, with thirst, with need, we get to see what love and faithfulness to God looks like. And we often, I think, nowadays especially, are prone to talk about this and the story of the gospel as though it is primarily about stripping the world of power. When in actuality, this is a story about power. It is a story about God's power and what that power looks like. And we see this one Jesus, who is, as the song says, Lord at birth already. That is, what does that mean? You can't be Lord at birth while you're breastfeeding and crying and 
learning to walk, but, but there he is, full of grace and truth already. It's already a strange story. And as this one grows, this one goes through a process of <laughs> probably embarrassing at times his family, though I think Mary always had a sense and, and learned along the way of what was, what was happening. But here is this one who begins speaking and teaching about the kingdom of God begins going to people who are typically excluded, talking about the poor being blessed, talks about not having a home to lay his head, and goes about drawing people into this idea of the kingdom of God, inviting them in to be children. And what's at stake, as John says for us, and as Hebrews says for us, and now we're getting close and into the, the call that these texts give us, is that this, in this one we see God's glory. We look at the life of Jesus and we see the glory of God. And this glory does not come from maximizing power that human beings are familiar with. It does not come from dominating. It does not come even from possessing and expanding oneself. In fact, Jesus talks about giving everything away to the poor and following him. Jesus does not like the perennial mistake of human beings trying to grasp at equality with God, going all the way back to the garden, does not see that, but pours himself out, even becoming a slave, even on a cross. And it's this that is the purpose of all of the Gospels, but especially in John and in our text Hebrews. John 12, it says, Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. And the crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. It's a fascinating moment. Human beings cannot understand that voice of God speaking to the Son. God's own self is communicated and articulated there in Jesus, in his flesh, in his body, in his vocal cords. There it is. That is the Son, the one through whom we see the Father and can understand him. That is the word of God made flesh. And then a voice, uh, um, Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. 
Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of the light. This is the moment which I'm not saying anything that if you've been around in church very much you haven't heard before. But there's still a way that it goes deeper and deeper into you and seeps deeper and deeper into one's life and one's hope. This is, this is the glory of God. The glo- moment that God is glorified is the moment when Jesus continues to give Jesus' own life back to the Father. To love the Father so much that Jesus commits his own life to the will of that Father even all the way to the cross. Jesus is not an accident of circumstances. Jesus is here. Jesus is handing over his life, communicating his life to us by communicating it back to God. And we see that there on the cross as he prays for those who who are actually crucifying him. Forgive them. They know not what they do. And, and as he says, into your hands I commend my spirit, Lord. Jesus is somebody who did not have to cover over vulnerabilities and need by expanding himself, dominating others, controlling others, possessing, taking, accumulating resources, becoming resource rich so that he could lord it over people. In fact, to do so would have been to bow down and worship Satan and receive all of the kingdoms that Satan promises him in the beginning of the gospel. God's power is different. And Jesus is here honoring that will, receiving who he is from the Father. Earlier in John, he says, the Son can do nothing by himself. He only does what he sees the Father doing. And Jesus gives himself back to the Father, and in so doing, gives himself to us. And it's there in that moment, not afterwards, not when Jesus is raised from the dead, not at some other time. It's there in Jesus' giving, in Jesus' eating with sinners, in Jesus inviting a woman to, to step into the place that typically a man would and, and bathe him in oils and prepare him for death. It is there in all of those things that Jesus is honoring the Father. And it's there that we see the glory of God. Glory is not separated from suffering. In Hebrews 2, 9, it says Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And that language of handing over it has, has a relationship to this language of tradition, which is in, in the other passage of Hebrews we read. The fathers, long ago at many times and in many ways, it says in Hebrews 1, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint, the exact pressing in of his nature. And he bears the universe by the word of his power. Literally in that second verse, it's, it's um, upon, upon the end of these days. He is spoken by his Son. This is where the challenge of it comes. (laughs) 
To talk about glory, to talk about Jesus having the glory of the Father, being somehow equal with the Father, sharing fully in the Father's life there in our presence. And to have Jesus, to, to acknowledge the reality that Jesus is, is glorified by the Father there as he glorifies the Father on the cross, and that's glory. It's a matter of not just believing, not just consenting, but a matter of worship. To actually see that vision and worship that. To believe that that is beautiful, that that is true power, that that is love, that that is life. To worship it, to honor it, and to live into it. And it comes into this story that we've connected it to here, that, that, that he comes into this story of Abraham. He comes into that long process of building up faith, and it is still the fa- same process of building up this great faith, but yet something tremendous has changed. Before, at many times and in many different ways, God spoke, says the writer of Hebrews. He spoke to He spoke to Jacob through dreams, through Abraham through dreams. He's spoken through the prophets, both in in speaking and proclaiming in and around the cities and in, in the written word of the Hebrew scriptures. God has in all kinds of ways and relationships and interactions and covenants uh, spoken in, in, in sort of many-tongued <laughs> expressions of himself taking hold of human beings' hands and beginning to, through their faith, inhabit in some way the world that God has created. But here, this is, this is different. This is the Son. This is not now... It, Everything that was spoken to the fathers is, is, is good and is right, yes, but, but those days have ended. This, the Son has come. This is the Word made flesh. There is no other way of knowing God now. This one bears the universe by the Word of His power. And it seems like this would be incredibly good news. That's what's happening here, and we see it all the time throughout the scriptures, is that God, in this moment of becoming flesh, has broken down all those walls. The the walls of Uruk are not definitive for our lives. It is not about building ourselves up, creating walls, separating ourselves off from one another, and keeping one another out. And when you experience suffering, as people in the time of, of the writing of 1 Peter and in Hebrews did, it doesn't mean that something has gone wrong with your faith or something has gone wrong with your relationship with God. God has not magically ended all suffering or ended all dominating power. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not overcome it, but the light shines in the darkness. This is a story about God coming and making it possible for us to choose God's power, God's life, to receive the gift of that life. But it means something very difficult. It means that this is a different way of speaking than we've known. This is a new covenant, something completely different. 
even in a world with suffering. Because if God had ceased to all the suffering, if God had stopped all the dominating power, if God had eliminated all the sin at the root of all of our fear, our contempt for one another that makes us construct walls against each other, choose and select what's good and what's right and what's powerful and hold to that and repeat the same sin of the garden over and over again saying that we're like God and we ultimately know what's good and what's evil. We ultimately have that knowledge instead of what again and again people in relationship with God have to say, which is that, Lord, you know. Right up all the way to Peter. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that actually there's something about the suffering, that this, this many ways of speaking, these many ways of relating to God, these many different human communities, these, that somehow it is in suffering with them that Jesus makes unity. It says later in Hebrews, at the present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So we don't live in that world. If God wiped it away, he'd have to wipe us all away too. And God hasn't done that. Instead, he's entered in. And he's transforming right here inside of you and inside of me. But we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing so many sons and daughters to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It's a strange way to talk, but I think it's connected to this idea that Jesus goes all the way to the point as a human being, perhaps the very first human. <laughs> Adam, it's not to say that Adam wasn't actually a human being of God, that we were in human, but you know what I mean by that, that is this is the first human living as a child of God. Here he is, and I think the psalm that's used in this section is used that way. And there in suffering breaks down all the walls and makes it possible for us to be with him, to see him, to choose him, to worship him, to receive life from him, to know what glory looks like and what power looks like, to know that there is no feeling of grief, of alienation, of separation, of pain, whether it's from biological failure of the body or whether it's from persecution from outside, that none of those things represent any feeling or experience that God does not know. God knows it in Jesus. And it is the thing that brings down the walls. And in that place of need and space where we, where we don't try to fix our need, cover over our need, hide our need, and sort of live in the city of Uruk, protect it in the wall, and just build a really nice temple inside of it and make that one more resource that we pass out to one another and think it has to do with the heavens and the later and not the here and now. And we go about just the practical, normal transactions of life. Later on in Hebrews, it says, no, what God did, God didn't do for the angels. God did it for the sons and daughters of Abraham. This is about this world here and now. Changes everything. I love that as a closing remark. I love that um, section from Isaiah 55 we read. It's a good way of, of, of getting a sense for how how weird this actually is. It is beautiful. It is amazing news. Jesus is our high priest. Uh, and, and unlike other high priests, he is not disqualified from representing the people and taking us into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God by death. He doesn't become made impure 
by death. It doesn't have to stay away from it. It's precisely through that suffering that Jesus is able to fold human beings as we come to see the glory in it, worship that, believe that, receive him as the bread of life, as the light of the world, and try to live into that same reality with God of giving of ourselves, of trusting God to give us who we are, trusting that we are secure in him and to live into that picture of love and life where need, vulnerability, is the companion of love, is something that we see in Jesus, how to make it the source in which we connect to the very life of the world. It is good news. It's what connects us to one another, connects us to Jesus, connects us to God. Not in a metaphorical way, but in an actual way, takes us into the very life and presence of God. And Jesus, Hebrews says, is that high priest forever. There isn't some other way. This is the, we become hospitable to this manifestation of power. And this is what we live into and toward, what we think is beautiful. And if we're open to it, we can discover all kinds of ways of moving in our own selves out of darkness and into light, which is a lifelong process of the experience of the unfolding of salvation. We are gods. We do belong to gods. We are, we are new creations. We do put on the new self that's already been created for us, but we are putting it on and putting it on and putting it on and putting it on. And that's why we don't do Advent just one year and then forget about it. We come to it every year. We, we allow the light to come into the darkness. Jesus came to his own and his own rejected him. We can't be too quick to trust our typical ways of doing it. Listen to Isaiah 55, which is usually read as such a celebratory word of hope on the other side of exile. And it is. It is good news. But if you really think about it, it is troubling good news. All of you who are thirsty, come to the water. Whoever has no money, come, buy food and eat without money at no cost. Buy wine and milk. Why spend money for what isn't food and your earnings for what doesn't satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Enjoy the richest of feasts. That sounds great. But if we do that, what happens to the dairy farmers and the people who sell the milk? And um, won't, it, won't it lower the quality of milk generally? And, and what will happen to the banks um, if we stored up all our resources and built this whole system? This, what, what does it mean for, for everything to be given uh, for free? And, and will, will, is it just one day? Is it just a one-day deal? Or do we get a, do we get a big, uh, can we stockpile it? Or is it just daily bread? Listen to me. Come to me. Listen and you will live. So if I don't listen to you, do I die? What's going on here? I will make an everlasting covenant with you with my faithful loyalty to David. Don't we already have a covenant? What are you doing, God? Look, I made him a witness to the peoples, a prince and commander to the peoples. Look, you will call a nation you don't know. A nation you don't know will run to you because the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, who has glorified you. Seek the Lord when he can still be found. Call him while he is yet near. I know the Lord. Don't I? Let the wicked abandon their ways and the sinful their schemes. You're not talking about me. Let them return to the Lord so that he may have mercy on them to our God because he is generous with forgiveness. Okay, 
I'll take the mercy, but that for everyone? Everyone who comes to you gets mercy? My plans aren't your plans nor your ways. My ways, says the Lord. Okay, wait a minute. This is, this is more than just a party. My plans aren't your plans nor your ways my ways, says the Lord. Just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours. We, we look at the life of Paul and we think, especially as Gentiles drawn in, we think, yes. Yeah. It's right. We like the light on the road to Damascus that knocked him off that horse and said, why are you persecuting us? Right? And made space for people like me to come in, even though I'm not a part in heritage, um, ethnically or traditionally a part of Judaism. I, I'm, I'm thankful for that. We like that. And we like, we like what he says about, about uh, Romans 8, that, you know, if God is for us, who can be against us? I like that. God is for us. Who can be against us? Nothing can separate us. No power, nothing. I like that. But what is it also about this power, this glory, knowing it, that leads Paul to look at his, come to a point where he looks at his own body, the markings of the covenant in his own flesh, his own mark of privileged masculinity even, and to look there and say, circumcision is nothing, new creation is everything. Take down the wall. Eat together. Make room for your neighbor in your heart. That is a heavy presence to have at the table as you take your seat next to Abraham. And as you take your seat next to Isaac, next to Jacob, that is a challenge to be able to bring down those walls to not need to expand yourself by having, by controlling, by knowing. Rather to have it be by trusting. And in this season, that's what it means. This light that shines in the darkness, it is life. And it is in us, God's own self within us, within this body. Active, alive, moving. We live in a world that did not welcome God. A world that he made that crucified him for blasphemy. Crucified God for blasphemy. So this season, we open up to the possibility that the light interrogates darkness that still even may be within us. And that to become aware of it, to see it, and to move closer to the light, to seek the light, to welcome it, even if it means looking around and realizing how many shadows are all around us and in us, that it's life and it's love and it has always been a story of need and it has always been the reality that God and God's love meets us right there in that need. It's not a different faith, but it is a new world and it is making new humans. Please pray with me. Father, help us this year to recognize this challenge, this destabilizing challenge is grace. Because it means that it doesn't all stand and fall with me. 
My future is secure in you. And my future is no longer just my future. It's our future. There is a we, a great we. God, help us not to always fight to hide vulnerabilities, but to recognize that you know us in suffering. You make space for us to come to you and to know you and to hold your hand and to be held by you through your son who suffers. Help us, dear Lord, to trust that. To go that one step farther that maybe the rich young ruler wasn't able to go, I don't know, but he was able to call Jesus good and he was able to know a lot of good theology, but when Jesus asked him to worship him by giving up the things he thinks makes him safe and to follow him, help us to be willing to do that to know that we'll find life there and to know that we'll find space for others there. Help us to be people who make space for your son in our lives. Pray all this in his precious name. Amen. Time of communion. I'm going to ask Carl to come up. I thought there would be... I got out of my order here on the order of worship. But yeah, that's what's next. Carl and I are going to have fun playing on the sax and the guitar together while everybody is invited to come up and to um, receive the bread, to eat Jesus' flesh and blood, to receive him as, as life. And we're just going to have fun and play a song, greet one another, hang out, have a good time while we play this together.